we're uh, mixing our metaphors this morning. Um, <laughs> we um, started this series, um, Eat This Book, uh, and exploring our relationship with the Christian scriptures. But this morning, we, we're, we're slipping into the metaphor of exploring landscapes as we think about our relationship with the Christian scriptures. So I just kind of want to kind of leave that sitting there with you as we, as we just uh, reflect together this morning. Um, so I, yesterday, I went for a, a bike ride from Akaraa through to uh, Ōtotahi Christchurch and um, went through the back roads from uh, along the... Summit Road and down into Pigeon Bay and Port Levy and um, back over the harbour and, and back home. And that, uh, it was on my new bike. Yes, no, no, no. It was on, on my, uh, my new gravel bike. So it was a lot of fun. It was a little bit of an experiment because I hadn't done a trip like that before. But those landscapes uh, are full of memories for me. Um, um, apart from just the, the physical features that are there with the, um, the bays down below you as you gain altitude and the tussock lands and the patches of bush um, and the the headlands of the harbour that you can spot from certain viewing angles where you can see those big sea cliffs at the entrance to Akaroa Harbour and Onawe, the peninsula, which is um, rich with some of the tragic history of uh, Mana Whenua as well, and all these other places, bays that actually bear my family's name and valleys that bear my family's name, Paulson's Valley, um, where my great-great-grandfather um, uh, milled timber. And then on the other side, Decanter Bay and uh, Little Akaloa, where they, uh, my great-great-grandfather, prior to that, um, also milled timber and uh, was a pastoralist. So the, the landscape is alive with uh, memory and people and place and features that are just evocative in multiple fronts and multiple ways. Um, I love what the Irish poet and philosopher and theologian um, John O'Donoghue um, talks about when he says that landscapes are not geographical locations, they are living spaces, they are alive with presence. And uh, when we're out in these places, we can look at them through different sets of eyes. And I've been thinking about that in relationship to Christian scripture, um, thinking of Christian scripture as a landscape, a land that is there to explore, a land that is there to nourish us, a land that has wild places, a, a land that cannot be domesticated for our own purposes, a land that in many instances cannot be tamed to become what we'd like it to be, uh, a land that is rich in the presence of God as well, just as our landscapes are. So I, I want us to kind of think about this metaphor. And the passage of Scripture that I've been drawn to um, as we think about this is taken from Luke chapter 24. So if we could just pop that up on the screen, um, that would be great. Is it going to cooperate with us, James? <laughs> Maybe I can try and do it here, shall I? No, I was relying on you popping it up here because this is where my text is. I... Here we go. 
Because Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36, not 33 as it says at the top. The disciples were still talking about, and in this instance it was their experience of meeting Jesus while they were traveling on a country road through a landscape. They were still talking about this experience when Jesus himself suddenly stood among them all and he said, may you have peace. They were surprised and terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have a body or bones, but you can see that I do. After he said that, he showed them his hands and feet, but they still did not believe it. They were amazed and filled with joy. So Jesus asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of cooked food. He took it and he ate it in front of them. Next slide. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the landscape of your scriptures or in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must come true. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer. He will rise from the dead on the third day. His followers will preach in his name. They will tell others to turn away from their sins and be forgiven. People from every nation will hear it, beginning at Jerusalem. You have seen these things with your own eyes. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But for now, stay in the city. Stay here until you have received power from heaven. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must come true. And then he opened their minds so they, so they could understand the scriptures. So here is this post-resurrection story of the disciples, the early followers of Jesus, encounter with him. And the thing that Jesus does, which is most noteworthy in my mind in this little passage, is this opening up of the scriptures to enable them to get an understanding of who he is and what God is about in the world. So scripture for Jesus is clearly an authoritative source for understanding the person and the work of God in the world and the purpose of human existence. Through his lifetime, he has been seeking to, to alert those who would follow him to these great truths or to these um, integral parts of human life and experience. And what does he do in order to seek to, to help weave together their understanding of who they are in the world as a people and their understanding of who Jesus is and the bigger understanding of what it means to inhabit this place that we call earth and understand it in the bigger sense of it being a creation of God 
And what he does is he turns and he opens up this sweet, this landscape of the Hebrew scriptures, the Judaic scriptures. He shows them in their stories and in their poems and in their prophecies and in their apocalyptic literature and all the other genres that are there, the face of God in Christ. It kind of sounds a little bit like a Where's Wally, doesn't it? You know, when you pick up the book and you really haven't finished studying a page until you've found where Wally is. And when you've found Wally, yes, there are other things that you can find as well. But the ultimate, the ultimate purpose in a Where's Wally book is to find where Wally is. And there's kind of this sense here where, where Jesus is saying the purpose of these scriptures has to be to, been to paint a portrait of the purpose of God in this one called the Christ. And I'm going to help you understand how to find out to find the face of the Christ in Scripture and there to find the heart of God. This Scripture is, is not something that just kind of, or this story isn't something that appears from nowhere. It's woven into the Israel story, and the Israel story is interwoven into the creation story. And the creation story is an all-people story. It's not something which is a tribal story exclusively or just for one people, but it is actually the story which is, is illustrative of all people's stories in many ways, even though it has unique features in terms of the emergence of Christ in the human person of Jesus. So I like to think of Scripture as this grand landscape. It has lots of wild spaces in it. There are places that are familiar, places that are unfamiliar, places where we might even be scared to venture. But it is this place where Jesus points to, to help us understand how we might discover who we are and need to be in the world and who God is and what God is doing in the world. And especially as that has shaped up in and through the person of the Messiah. So what do we see when we open up Scripture? Well, I want to suggest to you that we see what we have trained our eyes to see. Um, if you're a painter, if you're a real painter and not just one in your imagination like I was <laughs> in the exercise that Helen gave us, you, you will see all kinds of things in the landscape. You will capture the tones of color. You will capture the play of light. Your eyes will learn to see certain things in the landscape. If you're a geologist, you'll, you'll note features that others are oblivious to. If you're an entomologist or an historian or a farmer, you will see things in the landscape that others don't see. We see the things we have learned to see in many respects. We don't finish up all seeing the same things in the same way. And landscape, the landscape of Christian scripture is like that. There are some features that are kind of pretty obvious to us all. But then there are subtleties and distinctives about them that we don't always capture. If you're thinking about the Christian scriptures, what would be some of the big, the big picture features that would probably be obvious to anyone who has been around um, Christian faith communities for a little while, or perhaps even observed them with a certain amount of intent from the outside. Big features in Christian scriptures. Tell me some of them. Sorry, Tim? 
cross. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's a focus in the Christian scriptures on the story of Jesus and his death on a cross. What else would, would be a big feature? Parables, stories. Yeah. Miracles in, the, in, in different places, particularly in the life of Jesus. Yep. Creation, a story of creation, of the emergence of, of time and space and matter. It might be framed up by, by someone in our world, but the emergence of, of this that we inhabit and that this which we are a part of. What about just like Old and New Testaments as well? You know, some people talk about these scriptures, talk about old and new, but really this is terminology that's employed within the Christian camp. You know, the, the, Hebrews, the Hebrew scriptures or the Judaic scriptures are, are referred to by Christians as the Old Testament. It uh, feels like somewhat of an insult if you're a Jew. <laughs> these are our scriptures. These are our sacred scriptures. You're calling them old. Um, these are inherently um, inspired for us. And they're not just old, you know. But those, those two distinctives, Old and New Testaments, Based on manuscripts, the original versions of which clearly we don't have access to, but are compiled throughout time from the most um, from from extant or surviving manuscripts, and uh, brought together into uh, groups and collections of writings for different faith communities, both Judaic and Christian, over time, and then at some point being brought together into compendiums or canons of Scripture. Um, so all kinds of processes involved in shaping those documents that we now refer to as our, as our Bible or our Old and our New Testament. Some very, very complex and difficult um, work that has had to be done to bring those together. Books of the Bible. How many books in the Bible? 66 clickety click maybe <laughs> but what if you're what if you're a roman catholic you've got a few more haven't you you've got your deuterocanonical books um and there's, so there's a distinction in the in christian churches even about the number of books that there are within the uh, christian scriptures everybody agrees that there's 27 that uh uh, canonical books recognized as authentic and reliable and containing the um, the teaching, accurately representing the teaching of Jesus as it was understood by the traditions of the church. But in the Old Testament, even amongst the Jewish community, there's a difference of opinion about how many books um, there might be. So Catholics recognize 46 Old Testament books. Protestants only recognize 39. Uh, Eastern Orthodox have a few more. Um, so there are differences um, in the Christian community about the actual um, nature of the uh, compendium that we look to as our sacred texts. And then, of course, another thing that's obvious is the multiplicity of translations, isn't it? We've got exact equivalence translations and dynamic equivalent translations and paraphrases We've got scholars who work intently to try and produce translations in our languages that as closely as possible use language that's equivalent to the language, if they can find words that do it, 
that the, the words that were in the language in which they were written, whether it was Aramaic or whether it was Greek or whether it was Hebrew. So there's all these complexities lying behind the book that we have in our hand that make it challenging for us in multiple ways. Some of us have favorite translations. Um, you know, in, in a paraphrase, for instance, in Papua New Guinea with some of the people with the practice that they had there, translators were trying to find a phrase for the Lamb of God, and they decided that instead of putting an, uh, the Lamb of God, they would refer to the pig of God because the people in the tribal regions understood what a sacrificial pig would do within the context of their belief systems. It wasn't, it wasn't the word that was there in Scripture, but it was a word which conveyed meaning around the practice and the ritual. These are the kinds of questions that translators wrestle with all the time in different contexts. And it means that often the book that we have in our hands, the words that we are reading, is conveying meanings in different ways. Hey, I hope I'm not boring you with some of this because I wanted to kind of drill down into what lies beneath a little bit when we pick up these books that we revere as our scriptures and we reference in the shaping of our faith and our hope and our love. The other thing that we find in, in Scripture is literary genres. Who can tell me what a genre is? All of you probably can, but someone brave a description. A style of writing? Yep. What other things would we be thinking of with genres? Category of writing, yeah. So we have all kinds of literature in our, in our world. If you go to the library, you can get biographies, you can get novels, you can get, um, you can get dictionaries, you can get um, autobiographies, you can get historical novels, you can get, um, you can get books which are science textbooks. We have all kinds of genres of literature within the Bible. It's just not one type of genre. There's poetry. And there's, um, there's, there's bi biography, but not in the classic sense that we would understand it. Yes, there's, there's um, history, but it's history written from the perspective of a people many, many, many hundreds of years ago, not by the conventions, the writing conventions of modern historians. There's uh, this diverse and rich variety of literature. There's proverbs, um, whakatauki. Books of Proverbs and wisdom literature. There's such a diversity within the book. And then in the midst of all of this, there are individual authors with their grammar and their vocabulary and their syntax, writing in completely different ways. And some scholars love to dig down and say, you know, does this, the way this is arranged, really, can we be confident that it was written by this author? Or might it have been somebody else that wrote it? And have we got bits from someone and bits from another in a given book? So there's a whole field of, of um, research and what's referred to as criticism that, that lies within that. So this is the book <laughs> that we have that is the landscape that we explore. It has such a rich variety of distinctives and, and challenges within it. And how might we draw down from this book? And apart from those things I mentioned, there's all of those challenging human elements within the scriptures 
that you come across that can leave you befuddled and bewildered and confused and maybe even angry and, and uncertain and then things that bring delight and joy and just seem to make sense on the face of it. And others you think, what on earth is this writing about? You know, there are elements, there are customs and practices and um, complex and seemingly contradictory theological statements. You have people like Martin Luther um, in the 16th century who uh, was a leader within the Protestant movement, what we now refer to historically as the Protestant movement. And he wanted to throw out the epistle of James. He called it an epistle of straw because he was focused on seeking to, to I guess, remind people that this call to Christian faith is one which is embedded in the grace of God. And it's not, we don't find connection with God and ongoing relationship with him through a frantic effort to do that which we think would please God. But God graciously receives and loves all of us. And he felt that the epistle of James kind of set people up for failure because it was telling us that we you know, faith without works is dead and we have to do all of these things to keep God happy. He couldn't reconcile the two and he kind of thought, well, maybe if we just got rid of James' epistle, it would be an easy solution. This is the kind of thing that sits here for us um, as we wrestle with Scripture. We come across morally repugnant ethical and moral teaching. You know, people being told that if, you, if your children is rebellious, then your child is rebellious, then you need to stone them. Or if a woman's caught in adultery, she ought to be stoned. You know, Islamic law today, fundamentalistic Islamic law, continues that practice. But it's rooted also in certain texts if taken literally from the Christian scriptures. How the heck do you make sense of some of this stuff? And some people just throw up their hands at some point and say, it's all too confusing, it's all too weird. And, and start to disconnect from the landscape, withdraw from the landscape, understandably given the way some of this impacts them. And then you've got the strange thing within Scripture where it's self-proclaimed to be inspired by God. So while you've got all of this, these human elements in the landscape, you've also got these divine elements, and you're trying to figure out how it all fits together. How can we live in this landscape? How can it be a source of nourishment to us when it has all these kinds of features to it? How can these landscapes be not just geographical locations that we visit from time to time, but become living spaces that actually nourish us. Alive with presence. Alive with the breath of God that can be infused into us and help us on our pathway in life. I just want to suggest a couple. I know I'm going a little longer this morning, but I just I want to leave you with some practical things. Spend quality time in the landscapes of Scripture that feed and nourish you. You know, there are places in Scripture where you may venture and find that because it, of the nature of what you're exploring, it's not delivering what is needed for the nourishment of your soul at that stage in your journey. Don't feel guilty because you can't venture into those spaces. Venture back into the terrain and the landscapes within Scripture that actually will really nourish you. 
some of us kind of get driven by a sense of obligation because we're told that we must approach Scripture in a certain way. To go exploring spaces that we've gone beyond our stretch zone into the terror zone or we're just not, you know, being nourished by that. So I want to say spend time on those landscapes that feed and nourish you. I want to suggest, and this is going to seem contradictory, <laughs> be an adventurer. If there are spaces within the landscape of Scripture that you are hesitant to venture into, go with a companion who's been there before. Spend time with people who can take you into those spaces. You know, I love going adventuring, as many of you do. And, you know, some, there are some places I'm not going to go on my own. <laughs> I need somebody to go with me who has the knowledge and the experience and the skill to actually help me go in and encounter those in a way that it will be safe and welcoming for me. I may be stretched. I may have moments of anxiety and maybe even moments of terror. But having them present with me in those places can help me to journey in and discover new things in the landscape. So, oh, yes, spend time in the landscapes that nourish you. Also, take courage. Keep exploring, be an adventurer, stretch your boundaries of exploration and do it with others because it's the best way to do it. And that's what Jesus did when he sat with that little circle of people and opened up the landscape. They were doing it together. I think this kind of, this abiding post-enlightenment myth of me and Jesus and my Bible needs to be dispensed with. It's us together with this landscape that we live in, gifted to us, that we become better adventurers of the soul. And the other thing I just want to simply suggest is Jesus is the doorway into this landscape. This is what this story tells us. He gave a unique way for others to access and understand the wider landscapes of Scripture. I find personally for me that time and time and time again, I'm drawn back to the Gospels. The Gospels at times aren't without their, their challenges and problems too for me. But this is like, I don't know, the door to Narnia, <laughs> into the land. Jesus is like the door that takes us through the safe entrance and the safe exit. And the life and the teaching of Jesus is the, is the place where there is a doorway in to discover this landscape and get in touch with God and ourselves in a way that isn't possible through entering some other door. You can read in through any book, but without understanding the heart of Jesus, we can misread the landscape so easily. So landscapes. I love exploring landscapes. I know many of you do too, but there is this beautiful landscape, this challenging, wild, untamed landscape of Christian scripture that is the unique means of nourishment to us in our faith. And this series is one where we're saying, hey, let's do this. Let's do this together. Let's find a way of reconnecting with God through scripture, especially where perhaps we felt we have withdrawn from that ability to adventure in and venture in with others. Just want to finish with a story from John O'Donoghue, um, who I mentioned before, this Irish scholar, poet, and philosopher, who was talking on one occasion about the importance of reading books. 
and uh, he, he was an avid reader. And he talked about how reading for him and during his lifetime had been so nourishing. And he said one of the first books I read was a book by Willie Sutton, who was a, a bank robber. And he was doing 30 years in prison for robbing banks. And in the book, somebody asked Willie, um, why do you rob banks? And his simple answer was, because that's where the money is. <laughs> why do we read these scriptures? Because Jesus showed us that there is this unique way that we can have our connection with God, ourselves, and each other nourished and strengthened and grown through daring to inhabit this landscape and to do it together. God bless. Let's pray. Our loving God, this so much that we we do not know. What we know is just like a drop in the ocean compared to the vast world of discovery that awaits us in God and in Christ. We thank you for the beauty of our landscapes here in Waitaha, Canterbury. We thank you for the Fenua, for the Moana. Tuia kita Fenua, tuia kita Rangi. Lord, your love is written on the land. It's written in the skies, on the northwest arch, on the southerly dark banks rolling in over us. And it's also written in the landscape of these scriptures. Guide us and help us as we journey together into this landscape. Nourish us and feed us in the way of Jesus. Help us to become a community that grows in our ability and our capacity to just embody your love, embody your grace, embody your way. Amen.